most sports, most things in life are about making mistakes all the time. It's about how we recover from our mistakes that makes the best athlete, the best team, the best person. It, life is not a perfect science. And so if you're not afraid to push the envelope to the point that you're going to fail, you'll never know how far you can push that. Welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais. And the idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who are on the path of mastery. And we want to better understand what they're searching for. We want to understand their psychological framework, which is how they understand the world themselves, events in it. And we also want to understand the mental skills that they've used to build and refine their craft. Now, before we jump into this, I so appreciate all the support for the podcast. And if you love this podcast, please tell a few friends. It makes a big difference. It helps us grow and it would really mean a lot to us. So thank you. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Bubs Naturals. Like you, I am mindful about what I put into my body. So for me, it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity. The shorter the list, the better. And that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their hydrate or die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash finding mastery and enter the code finding mastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubs naturals, B-U-B-S naturals.com slash finding mastery with a code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why Hims has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, I really want to encourage you to go check out Hims. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash finding mastery. That's hims, H-I-M-S dot com slash finding mastery for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash finding mastery. 
Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And for this week's conversation, I hope you enjoy this. There's so much loaded in here. And before we jump into it, imagine being within striking distance of a lifelong dream. It's right there. You can see it. You can feel it. It's right there. And then to realize that you're at a fork in the road. If you continue onward in the pursuit that you're on, you put others' lives in danger. Or if you turn back and potentially never have the opportunity to take a shot at your dream again. So that's the crux of this conversation. If you move forward, and this is not, this is not like, like this, I don't know, like make-believe scenario. This is something that's very concrete. There's a time-sensitive decision. If you move forward, you put other lives at, at harm. And if you turn back, you might not ever get your shot. What would you do? You know, how would you respond? And this is one of the reasons why it's so important, I think, to be able to front load the mental skills, to front load the training for how to think optimally, how to know uh, the, the framework to be able to resonate against the decisions that are challenging against your true nature and your, your character. And so it's really an important thing to get ahead of it and to front load the training. So we minimize moments of crisis for sure by doing that. And ethical decision-making under duress, it's a fascinating process that takes over um, for humans. And again, one of the reasons to front load that training. So I don't know anyone that says to themselves or even says out loud, I'm a bad human being. I'm a terrible human being. And I do awful things to other people. Most people, they use strategies to be able to make sense of or act in denial, to, to turn a blind eye, if you will, to behaviors and thoughts and words that are compromising to other people's well-being. And what we end up doing in this storytelling to ourselves is we justify the behavior. And there's a lot of science around that. But check into yourself throughout this conversation um, about your ability to rationalize or to make sense of things that are actually ethically challenging. All right. So that that's the essence of this conversation. And especially when money and effort and years of commitment are on the line, our moral compass, if we're not careful, can become clouded. And that that's not me saying to you, that's all of us. That can happen. So this conversation is with Mountaineer and Trinity College field hockey coach, as well as lacrosse coach and Parmenter. And we touch on all of this. She faced it down. She was in it. She's got clarity about that process and it wasn't easy. And Anne has a very unique perspective. She's been in the trenches summiting some of the world's greatest mountains. And she's also coached young athletes, college-aged athletes, for over 20 years. Anne has climbed many mountains. Aconcagua in Argentina, Denali, Chimborazo in Ecuador, Mount Blanc in the French Alps. And she's had two expeditions to Mount Everest. And in this conversation, we discuss how to prepare for moments of true test. Like, true test. And embedded throughout this conversation is resiliency, and it's been a profound theme for her over her life. We get into that, and we dive into strategies that she's used to overcome internal and external setbacks and how she helps do the same for the athletes that she coaches. So this conversation has a dual pivot on it. It's, it's for anyone listening as strategies that she's used just like you could use, as well as the other pivot is, or the other lenses is that we can think about how we can help others 
through their process. And, you know, obviously that's an important strategy as well. So we touch on why the environment that you operate in can have a significant impact on your mindset as well as your psychological framework, which both of those ultimately do impact performance. And I hope this conversation seriously inspires you to embrace challenges and overcome obstacles because that's what this is about and get you thinking. How would you act? How do you want to act in moments of crisis when something you really want is at stake, but there is a cost to it? And with that, let's jump right into this conversation with Anne Parmenter. Anne, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks, Mike. Oh, good. So um, thank you for coming on and having this conversation. You know, one of the things that we like to do in this podcast is be able to explore the beginnings of how people became and have achieved something that has grabbed the attention of many. And um, you were recommended by a former guest. And can you talk about your relationship with that former guest? Yes, uh, Paul Asiante is the head squash coach at Trinity College here in Hartford, Connecticut, and I am the head field hockey coach. I've been here for 16 years, and I've known Paul for the entirety of my time here. And I feel that you know Paul and I, although we coach different sports, we've sort of followed similar pathways, and he has actually helped me. As I have gone through my my time here, we serve on a number of um, leadership committees here at Trinity together, and we we've just been very good friends for a long time. And so, um, after I listened to his podcast from from your show, he he suggests he goes, "I'm I have to get in touch with my friend Michael because you need to do this." And so I agreed. <laughs> I love it. So yeah. Paul, yeah, right afterwards, Paul said, "He said, listen, you've got to connect with Anne." And so I said, okay, let's go. And so yep. he, he's so switched on about how, really about the path of mastery, but really uh, about the human experience inside of sport that I followed his lead blindly and I'm looking forward to this conversation. And yep. so if I, if I get it right, uh, doing some digging and some homework is that you've used sport and mountaineering in particular and coaching to really understand how to push the rules as far as you possibly can, but play inside the rules and to reveal the decision-making and ethical processes that are involved in intense situations. Does that sound close to being right? Uh, I think you you said it better than I ever could. Um, <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's perfect. Okay, yes. beautiful. So then walk us through. So you, you've done uh, at least two mm-hmm. Everest climbs. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and then you've also mountaineered... Um, other summits as well. Yep. You know, I've, I think coming to the United States in 1984, which we can talk about a little bit later, I don't know that I would have been sort of able to have the opportunities that I've had since since arriving here. I had been involved in, in mountaineering and climbing in the UK, but, you know, once, once I got myself established here, I already had a sort of mountaining and mountaineering and climbing background, but I, I sort of, I've, I've met people along the way and it's all been about the connections with other people. I was fortunate enough to get with a group from Connecticut here to go to a mountain called Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South America, in Argentina, right on the Argentine Chilean border. And during that expedition, there were four of us three guys and myself and 
two of the guys got altitude sickness and decided that they were going to return home. Third guy said, well, obviously I've got to go with them. And at that point I was feeling great and I was completely bummed that we were going to turn around when we were only at base camp. But there was a full-time professional mountain guide, uh, Jim Williams from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, guiding his own private clients that we had been climbing alongside for a few days now. And, you know, you get to know a lot of people when you're sharing camps with, with these expeditions. And Jim knew our circumstance and he just put an offer out to me and said, hey, jump ship and stay with my, my group. And so I got the approval of the three that I was with. And that's kind of how this all started. I stayed, climbed with Jim, helped one of his clients. I you know, managed to summit Aconcagua. And I'm, that was in, I think, 1992. And I'm still great friends with with Jim today. I've been on many trips with Jim since that time. Uh, a mountain called Arma de Blom, which is in the Himalayas and looks right at Everest. I was with Jim, actually summited. It was December the 6th, 1999 on that expedition. And it looks right at Everest. And I never thought I'd ever, you know, have the opportunity to then go and climb one of the big 8,000 meter peaks. But um, I've been back to Aconcagua, so three times on Aconcagua. I've climbed Denali again with Jim, Arma de Blom. I've climbed the volcanoes in Ecuador, uh, Chimborazo, Cotopaxi, some of the summits in the Alps, Mont Blanc, and then Everest, two Everest expeditions, one summit. Okay, beautiful. All right, so in this conversation, bring us into why mountaineering. Like, what was what was younger life like and... Bring it, bring us into that so that we can get a sense of why mountaineering was your choice. I think, you know, my schooling in the UK was at a time where it was schooling in England was going through a very experimental stage of what they called comprehensive education. And my year just happened to be part of that experiment. I don't think I did very well in that environment. It was very unstructured. And so I was not a top tier academic streamed uh, student. But I had a, a teacher who, when I was 11, took a group to the Lake District in Great Britain, which is a mountainous area, very beautiful. And it was a mixture of boys and girls. And I think, you know, without realizing at the time, we slept in tents, pouring rain, you know, most people would think it was miserable. And I absolutely loved it. I think it was the first time that it really occurred to me that boys and girls could do these activities. There was no difference between whether a boy or a girl. We were all, we were climbing, we were hiking. We got to do a, mountain, a mock mountain rescue with one of the old uh, mountain rescue teams and, uh, and their leader. And I just thought it was amazing. And so that was my first exposure was when I was about 11 and, you know, at about 13, I started playing field hockey and competitive games. I also ran. And then when I went to college, I went to a physical education college in England called Chelsea College of Physical Education. And we had to choose what would be considered sort of a secondary concentration. So I chose outdoor education and I was playing field hockey competitively and at a high level. But then this whole outdoor aspect 
hiking, climbing, canoeing, leadership stuff in the outdoors became um, my sort of secondary focus and it became more and more important. And that was my introduction was, was that in the UK. Okay, so go back to 11 just for a moment. That when, yep. you're, when you're in the tent, it's yep. raining, you've got you know, mixed gender. <laughs> and you, yep. do you remember the moment when you said, whoa, gender doesn't matter here? Do you, re- do, do you yeah, recall I, that? I can remember, you know, the girls shared a tent. The boys were all in their own tents. But I can remember very specifically, it was the boys had done, they were allowed to sleep outside two nights before the trip was ended. The boys were going to get to do a bivouac outside one night, and then the girls were going to do theirs the next, and it was going to be weather dependent. And the boys had done theirs. And then the next night, the weather wasn't very good. And they, they then said, oh, we're going to cancel this. And, and I remember the girls lobbying that, well, it doesn't really matter whether the weather's very good because we've got our survival bags. And they, they agreed. They allowed us. They're like, well, the boys did it, so the girls have got to do it. I remember that scenario. And I also remember just all hiking together. And there was myself and I think a couple of other girls. And the, the boys were behind us and realizing that, wow, we're actually ahead of the pack here. It's not about winning or being first, but you know, the girls weren't being left behind. We were just one big group of filthy, dirty, smelly kids out in the woods, you know? Um, (laughs) And it was great. And we all loved it. And we were wet for the whole time. Were your parents, like, let me learn from your parents a little bit. Were they dirty, smelly? Like, were they into that as well? (laughs) Or were they uh, more prim and proper? And this was a big deal to support you to go to this camp? Like, what were your parents like? Yeah, they were not, I would say, my mom was probably more athletic of my parents and had, my mom is is still alive today. She's 85, she walks, she swims, very active, and she currently lives in Australia. But she was a community nurse. She worked really hard. My father was an aeronautical engineer, had been in the RAF, Royal Air Force, but was not an athlete, was really not that interested in sports, was more interested in, you know, messing around on the car at the weekend. And, you know, I was a little bit more of the tomboy athlete that bit of a misnomer in some respects, but I, you know, my mom was the one who would listen to the rugby on the radio because she was from, both my parents were from Scotland. And my mom had been brought up in a town where rugby was a really huge part of the community. But they've always been, you know, they were always really supportive of the things that I wanted to do. And uh, whether it was running cross country or playing field hockey and then doing this school trip, which, you know, my mom and dad were two working parents. We didn't have a lot. It cost money to send me on this trip and there wasn't a lot extra. And so... In order for us to do things, I had a sister. I have a sister. Um, we had to we had to either save up our money from pocket money ourselves, and then mum and dad would usually sort of chip in. But we had to show that we were fully committed to wanting to do this. How did you earn money? Um, at eleven, I I first I was babysitting when I was about ten, and then at eleven I got a paper round, and in the mornings before school, I, six days a week I did a paper round. And at the time, I made, what was it, like 70, I made, I made basically, I mean, it's ridiculous back then, but it was like, I made a dollar a week to do a paper round. So I did that. And then I got a job working in a, in a store. And, and then 
at 16, there was a, a community sports center was built next to our school, which was just, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because I could be a lifeguard then. So I actually got paid to be working in the sports center. And there was a climbing wall in the sports center. And that's when I first got introduced to indoor rock climbing and that there could be a whole nother community of this. And then, uh, and then what age was that? 16. 16. Okay. So there was some outdoor stuff that happened at 11 that you yep. felt stimulated by and felt some gender equity um, yep. was a first kind of thought interception of, of that thought. And then uh, you started really working in different jobs. Well, no, not then, but you had to earn yeah, yourself into the yeah. yeah. And then you found climbing. Okay. So at 16. And then, but nobody in your family climbed. Nobody nope. was really like, it sounds like they were supporting you, but nobody was nudging you towards nope. a particular path. Okay. Now, did you become, as the, as the woman you are today, did you become more of what your mom wanted you to be, your dad wanted you to be, or was it a complete path all into your own? I think it was a path all onto my own because I distinctly remember when I went to this the school that I had this outdoor climbing trip from, it's the first time I'd ever, we ever had an actual sports teacher. And I mean, I think the only thing I was really good at at school was, you know, I was, I was really good at all the different sports academically, you know, my report card would read. Anne spends too much time looking out the window and would rather be outside playing. Um, and my mom reminded me of that this past summer when she visited. You know, I'm sure nowadays I'd be diagnosed with something and have been on some kind of medication because I couldn't focus. But when I realized that there was an actual job that you could have teaching sports, I knew at age 11 or 12 that I wanted to be a physical education teacher and that I was going to go to physical education college. Nobody told me about it. Okay. I just found out that you could actually do this and teach sports for the rest of your life. And I can remember teachers at school. I remember a very particular instance at 13 when an English teacher called me out in class I thought I was going to college and that I should think about doing something else because I was never going to be smart enough to even get into college, let alone be a teacher. And oh, so somebody said that to you. Out loud, in a class, called me out, and then two years later when my sister followed in my footsteps, that same teacher reminded her that her sister thinks she's going to college. She needs to think, of, yes, and that has had a profound effect on me. When when you bring that up even right now, what happens for you? Oh, I get I get so angry inside. Yeah. Really. And then it has affected me in now teaching here at Trinity where in me teaching an academic course as a freshman advisor and a freshman seminar professor, there is a big part of me that feels that somebody's going to find me out that I'm not really that and I should never be sitting in charge of 14 <laughs> first years that I'm in you know the whole imposter syndrome totally. uh, yeah. is huge but I've also I shared that story I have shared that story with my first years and have told them that the most important thing for me is as a teacher is Nobody can ever tell you that you can't do something. And particularly, 
doing it out loud in front of your peers. I'm very conscious of that when I coach how I deliver information to students because of the effect it had on me. I know I've said things to my athletes that at our end of year meetings, they will say, oh, on September the 3rd, Anne, you told me that I couldn't. And I'm like, oh, geez, I did. And I think it's amazing the effect that teachers have on people. But to be publicly called out by this teacher, both my sister and I have said we would love to go knock on that teacher's door and just say, hey, look, I think we, I think we kind of turned out okay. Okay, so I've got, I've got like 15 thoughts around this one idea. And the, mm-hmm. let me start with just the most maybe counterintuitive response to what you're saying. And the, 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 I, th- I think the intuitive response would be, wow, that's terrible. But the counterintuitive, what I want to say is, well, hold on, because you, you felt something and you had a response to something that someone said, and then you swallowed that and made it part of your motivational path moving forward to do amazing things and to coach in a beautiful way. So I'm not, I'm not advocating that people should be rude to kids publicly by any means, but you did something really special with that pain. And I, I don't know if you've, if you've healed from the pain or you're still using that pain because it sounds like it's still kind of in you now, the anger, but what, would you would you want that person looking back now? Would you want that person to not say that to you? Oh no! And I have spoken with my sister. We we talk about this often. Mm-hmm. I would, in my mind, want to knock on that teacher's door and thank them because, like, an authentic thank you. Yes, thank you for challenging me in a way that you, at the time, yes, hurt and has hurt for a long time. But I think that shaped me to really, I mean, school was a challenge for me, but I had a goal. I had a focus. I knew exactly what subjects I needed to do well in in order to get to college. I found out that information all on my own. And then I was driven that I was getting there you know, come hell or high water, that is what I was going to do with my life. I was going to be a teacher of physical education. You know, nothing, nothing was going to get in my way, basically. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Apollo Neuro. I am really excited about what Apollo Neuro is building. If you haven't had the chance yet, I highly recommend that you go check out the conversation I had with their co-founder, Dr. David Rabin, On the podcast, it is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real-world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, 
you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code findingmastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist, and it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash findingmastery and enter the code findingmastery at checkout to save 20%. And then where did you learn that persistence? Where did you learn that intense competitive drive that nothing is going to get in my way? How did that, how did, cause that sounds like a very special trait or skill set that you have. I mean, I think being, you know, I, I first started, you know, running track and cross country and then I found, you know, field hockey, which, you know, in the UK is huge. It's not as big here. Team sports not again not being selected for the first team right away i've had to i've had to really be a hard grafter it hasn't you know it hasn't always been handed to me on the on a plate but if you want something badly enough and you're willing to keep working and keep working you know when i went to college the college had six field hockey teams and my you know for the first year i was on the second team i didn't make the first team right away and then an opportunity arose and I was selected to the first team and we went on and won what would be our national championship in the UK mm. on that college team. We went to Europe. We qualified playing in Czechoslovakia to go on to the European championships. And that wouldn't have happened if I quit because I only made the second team. Okay, so help me understand what you said to yourself at the moment when you didn't see your name on the board, when you didn't make the first team. You're crushed. Okay, so what, what did you say to yourself? I don't know if I said anything other than I'm going to just keep working. Okay, so you didn't – and then the feeling was – I got a phone call from our captain that somebody couldn't make this upcoming tournament and I was the next person. And so, you know, I was the 12th man, if you like, or 12th woman. 
And I jumped at that chance and I got to the tournament and jumped in with two feet. And from that moment forward, I was on the first team for the remaining of my three and a half years. Mm. So you, okay, so you captured the opportunity. So the, yep. the first the first thing when your name wasn't on the board is that you were crushed, which, if, you know, the emotion yep. around that was like hurt or embarrassed. It was one of those two or maybe both. Yeah, well, hurt, I mean, a lot of people's names weren't on that, that list, but okay. I was surrounded now at physical education college with, you know, there were a number of women who were playing, you know, on the national team. So there were people playing at extremely high levels who it seemed to come very easily to, and so always living in the shadow of those people. Okay, so you didn't you didn't make it about you. You separated. You didn't say. It sounds like you didn't say, "I'm I am not worthy." You said, "My skill needs to get better." Like you were able to separate those two. Yeah, I need my skills need to get better, and I need to just keep working at this. Keep working. Okay, uh, so it wasn't a blow to the self esteem. It was more like. Uh, not at the time, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I also think that's a very British, you know, sort of mm-hmm. head down, keep grafting kind of, that, that's a very cultural thing too. But I think my experience there has helped me in in some of the situations that I've had sort of when I came to the US, it's almost like you could reinvent yourself and using those experiences from my time um, growing up and being in England to here, it's sort of very much survivalist type of mentality, really. Okay, so and you learned that, or you were first exposed to that maybe when you didn't make that first team? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I okay. had a couple of those experiences along the way of, yep, you're not on the first team, you just got to keep trying. And then what does that keep trying? What, what, uh, is, if you were to put that into action, is that it's obviously doing the work, the practice, but is there a particular way that you would practice and when that thought would kick in to be valuable to you? Was it to start practice or was it a way that you focused more deeply in the middle of practice or was it towards the end you would push a little further? Like how did that actually apply? Well, I think, you know, I'm 57 years old now and I consider myself, I am an athlete. When people talk about, oh, back in the day, it's like, well, it's still my day. I don't consider myself an ex-athlete. I, you know, I was at the climbing gym last night. I was out on the rocks on Sunday. I was running yesterday morning. You know, I, I run road races now. My times might not be what they were, but I, in my mind, there's no reason why I can't still be better every time within my age group. I'm climbing, if you look at the grades, harder now than I've ever climbed in my life. And I think it's about learning as you get older, I think the adage of work smarter, not harder, my technical understanding of whether it's through field hockey and coaching, my skill set now is so much more refined that I don't have to do all that crazy running in order to be in the right place because I know and understand where the ball's going to be in three passes from now. Or when I'm climbing, it's about how my body moves as opposed to over-gripping the rock and trying to pull the rock down. How I go about things, even in my daily life working in the office, if I'm going downstairs, I'm not going to walk up and downstairs 20 times when I can walk up and downstairs once if I'm more efficient. So 
I think about that much more consciously, being smarter about how I work so that I can maximize the output of when I'm actually training and working. Okay. And then for the rest of us that are not at the level of fitness or activity that you are, but you're using, you're using something difficult, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever the, the area of interest might be, you're using something challenging to you to redefine the way that you think about the world. And, and so how, how can the rest of us use some of the lessons that you've learned about being efficient? I look at it as, you know, understanding that your body is going to age through time. Okay. But fighting, for me, fighting the fact that as your body ages doesn't mean you should slow down or stop because, yeah, you sure as heck seize up and it's harder to get it moving in the morning. But the important thing is the fact that if you can keep moving, you don't you don't experience that seizing up. And for me, my mental and emotional state of mind is very affected by whether I've been active. And there will be days when I, I need to go for a run, not because of the physical benefits, but I need to clear my mind. I need to think about how my practice is going to be that day or to process. And we lost a big game on Saturday. How do I process that? And I will try to, to use running, climbing as a way to refocus. And it doesn't have to be super intense, but I, I do think it's important, whether it's through walking or through yoga, through meditation, to be able to get to that different mindset where you can separate an intense experience in your life and step out of that and realize that, you know, that, that moment was just that. It was just a moment in your life, and it's not the be-all and end-all of everything, even though at the time it might have seemed so. And for me, running and climbing is a way for me to get beyond that very, very sort of deep feeling that you have about an intense experience. Mm. Okay, and then do you... Do you see, because I heard two different ideas inside of what you just said. One is that you had a big game, and yep. then the other thought was that it's just a moment. You know, whatever whatever the intense ex emotional experience might be, it when you really kind of separate uh, in a healthy way, it's just another moment. So which, which way do you see, um, I don't know, we can take it outside of sport and put it into... Um, anything really it could be business or intimate conversations do you see them as big moments like a championship game is a big moment or a champ or putting your hand up in a boardroom to share an idea is a big moment or is it just another moment i think academically a championship game is a big moment a hand up in a board meeting is a big moment but in order to practice for those moments you have to have you have to make every practice or every smaller group meeting safe enough so that you can perform at the highest level when it matters the most without feeling the pressures of the big moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so then what you do is you, in practice, you amplify the safety as well as some sort of 
yeah, it sounds like you create safety in practice so people can push to a limit based on that safety yes. so that they can become comfortable being at a limit so that when they, it's almost like then they flip into an, uh, I'm almost seeing like a, oh gosh, uh, like a card that flips its on its side. And then now, now you're in an intense moment for real. And yeah. then, the, but, but you've trained the person to push to a limit. Yeah, so, you know, Hmm. mastering, mental mastery, and for me, rock climbing is a perfect um, example because when when you are rock climbing, you can either do, you can either top rope, which means there is a rope connecting you to the rock that's running above you and, and down to somebody who is holding the other side of the rope, the belayer. So if you were to slip and fall, you're, you know, you're gonna slip, maybe two inches, the stretch of the rope. But as when you really get into rock climbing, you start to lead climb, which means you take the rope to the top of the cliff and you are placing pieces of what's called protection. You're finding natural cracks in the rock where you can place protection that you clip. And now you climb above that protection If you were to fall above that protection, so if I climb two feet above my last piece of protection, I actually am going to fall double the distance, four feet. And so the consequence of my actions now, the higher I climb above my last piece of protection, become really quite significant because you can fall five, 10, 20 feet the further you climb between your pieces of protection. And so trying to mentally train for a very difficult rock climb, and this is where now you're upping the ante all the time, is I will either practice a climb with a top rope, knowing I can do the movement, and there's many climbs where I know I can climb them, but if I were to lead it, the consequence of me falling now could be quite extreme and being able to do that is being able to overcome that voice in your mind that's sort of saying i could die i could die i could die where you have to master that mind and say i can climb this how do you do that i love i love the simplicity of the explanation and how do you in particular you take a i mean i was just doing this on sunday so there are days when I can step up to a climb and I can take a deep breath and I will either have a routine, a a very, very short couple of seconds of couple of breaths. I put all my gear on my climbing harness. I put the chalk on my hands. I have, you go through a routine and the minute you step onto the rock and I've got my eyes closed as I'm saying this to you because you see yourself succeeding and you practice the movements mentally and then you visualize completing and being successful with each sequence of what it is you're doing, whether that's the rock climb, whether it's running a race, it's focusing on your goal and making your goal something that can be broken down into small pieces where you visualize yourself completing each of those pieces to reach your ultimate end goal. Okay. So if you're at the bottom of a, a wall, I can see how you could 
in your mind cascade uh, the 20, 20 or so holds, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's easy to do. But mm -hmm. if you're at the bottom or at the beginning of a marathon, how mm -hmm. would you how would you run the entire marathon? Or would you just see a couple segments that you think um, might be tricky? Yeah, so how I've done marathon running is I've divided it up mentally. I The first five miles are my warm-up. So start the race. I'm the kind of person who likes to get as far as close to the front as I possibly can, even though I, I'm not running with those five-minute milers. I, I want to get up, get out of the way of everybody's feet. Race goes off. I know I'm going to end up running faster at the beginning than I really want to, but here we go. Mm -hmm. Hold on for dear life. So gun goes off, start running. And I use the first five miles as like, I'm just, I'm going with the, I'm going with the crowd. I'll hang in there. That's my warm up. It's like, okay. So I run it in five mile type of increments. And so second five takes you to 10 miles and you're now well in, you're beginning to really get in the groove at this point. So once you've hit the hour mark, now you're into your running. And now from 10 to a, <laughs> for you, for, yeah, well, for, for you. Yeah. For right. me, for me, I'm done. Like, yeah, like, well, yeah, yeah, I, but this is when I've been running a marathon. I've, this is how I've, and then I'll be looking at the splits. So from 10 miles to the half marathon distance, 13.1, I'll keep an eye on what my time is because I usually will have, I, I will have a goal of what I want to try to run. Now I can see, am I on my target? Am I running, mm -hmm. you know, sub eight minute miles? I'll run from, from the half marathon 13.1 now. From there to 18, it's now you can enjoy the, enjoy the race. Really enjoy it. Take it in. I can remember running the Boston Marathon, the 100-year anniversary. All I wanted to do was break three and a half hours. I, I didn't care about the whole occasion and how historic it was. And I realized I ran the race, went home, couldn't remember anything about the race because I was so focused on just time, time, time and pace and pace. And so having some conscious being able to see the people that were there cheering everybody and, you know, the weather and the day. And so then at 18, you know, the supposed you hit the wall time, get to 18 and then you go, it's only eight more and then get inside 20 and then it's hold on for dear life and just bring it home. Okay. So you've pre-programmed some thoughts that you want to have at 18 and 20 and the start of the race. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so part of those segments that you have you'll do a quick hit before you take your first step and see them. Um, and then, but do you also do imagery beforehand, like days before, weeks before, months before? Are you always doing imagery? How do you use that skill um, in your life? You know, and I think tra training for a marathon, I tell people, you know, because everybody always talks about, you know, how do you train to climb Everest? How do you train to, I think part of what my life is, it, I have, you know, my life is running, climbing. It's, this is my lifestyle. So when I say to people, I didn't train for Everest, I just did what my life is. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that to be sort of facetious or sarcastic. It's like my life is active every day. It's active with a goal to this is what my goal is right now, or this is what my goal is. So I don't, you know, it hasn't, things might change a little bit depending on, on what it might be. In the miles that you put in in preparation for running the marathon, those miles that you're putting in 
is seeing yourself completing the race. And, and it's the preparation of all those miles that will enable you to actually run the race. And weeks and weeks and weeks ahead of time is, is how you – running a marathon is, yes, there's the physical component, but it's much more of a mental – you know, most people can't imagine running for, you know, four hours to actually go out and run for four hours. That's ridiculous. Why would you ever do that? But the preparation is to be able to get yourself to realize you can go out and run for four hours. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. and. Part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. And like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. It is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. That's so what I do is I just fill up my shaker add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a, there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drink ag one dot com slash finding mastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash finding mastery. Finding mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code FINDINGMASTERY at checkout. Again, that's AquaTrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there.
Okay, so I want to share, can I share a couple thoughts I have as you've been going? Yep. Like I've got some models that I'm working from. Um, one is that Coach Carroll, for the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, he says, Mike, and he says to the team, every moment, every game is a championship game, whether it's the Super Bowl, regular season, preseason, every practice is a championship practice. Every moment is a massive moment. So we have to capture this moment by being in it now. And, yep. I, and I say, okay, I hear you. And I flip it on its head and say, I say the I go the other way. I say, Pete, there's no such thing as a big moment. I say, there's no such thing as a big game. There's no such thing as a big play. All you get is this moment. So yep. then the work is to be in this moment. And so we're 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 starting in two very different places and ending up at the same exact place, which is the present moment. Yeah. And so so I hear you saying this, uh, more, you're more aligned to Pete's model, Coach Coach Carroll's model about you know uh, you've you've got there are big moments, but but we want to work to maximize our limits in what seems to be an ordinary moment. But you've just made it a big moment if you've maximized your limits through safety. And it sounds like what you're – that's your model, uh, Anne, if I have it right. But what it sounds like you're doing is in that space, by creating safety, um, the, the, the space of safety, helping people push their limits, that you're giving them an exposure to self-talk. Because they're out on the limb, they're out in, in some sort of limit, so that they can say to themselves, I can do difficult things. And you, it sounds like you've designed your whole life to do difficult things, because you didn't take the easy path on just about anything. Someone told you you couldn't, and you went the distance and became educated, became an educator, and, and summited some of the gnarliest mountains in the world. So, so is that kind of the way that I'm hearing that you've structured maybe your personal life efforts in to support the life efforts of others is to help them explore the moment that it becomes difficult or limit so that they can realize that they do have the internal right to say to themselves, I can do difficult things. Yes. And I, I had a moment yesterday with one of my players and I think part of getting older and now looking at uh, you know the population that I'm coaching, 18 to 22-year-olds, and you want so much to share you know, what you now are becoming conscious about in the way that you live your life and realizing that when I was 18 to 22, I f- had the same reaction as, as this young player had to me yesterday – I was really challenging her to play differently and she was resisting. And so we stopped practice and brought everybody together and trying to get this young woman to acknowledge it's not about me being right and her being wrong in what is happening. And at at the age that some of my players are, they are still – they are fighting me that the way they're doing something is is right. But they also realize that I, the coach, I'm not trying to get them to do something that is wrong, but what I'm asking them to do is now a little bit more difficult but will lead to more success for them as a player, but that they have got to be willing to try something different. And this player's reaction to me is, but this is hard. And I said, yes, it is very hard. It is very hard to be willing to try to change something that you've been doing for a long time that has been giving you a level of success that you have now plateaued and you will never 
achieve greater than because we are now playing against people who are much quicker and faster and stronger. But if you tweak just a couple of things in how you play, your level of success is going to be exponential. Okay. But the, ment- the maturity of a young athlete, and so in my coaching, I don't, I don't enforce a certain way of playing. I will try to explain why I want them to try something different, but that is frustrating when they won't try it. Yeah, I've, yeah. Okay. It's hard. It's it, very hard. Yeah, and okay, again, you've earned the right to say to yourself, I can do difficult, I can do hard things. And it sounds like your model is to help people uh, be aware the value of that inner dialogue. And you know what? Like This is where I think sports psychology has gone very, very wrong, is that they – the evidence or the the lazy version of sports science is just say that you can do it. Just speak yep. to yourself in positive self-talk. Just figure out the right things to say to yourself and then just say those over and over again and have these affirmations where you know they sound great when you say them and just repeat them so you brainwash yourself. That doesn't work. No. I, at least it doesn't for me. I've never – and you know I, I know that I, I sound – I don't want to say condescending, but I'm agitated that the lazy part of a discipline that is beautiful is butchered by that that oversimplistic understanding and application of the value of the inner dialogue. And so it sounds like you're structuring difficult, challenging moments so people can learn the value of saying, I can do, I can do it. But they've had to I, earn it. I, I 100% agree with everything you just said. Nothing replaces the work that has to go into perfect performance in whatever aspect of your life that that might be. And you're right. I can say over and over again, I'm going to, I'm going to run a four minute mile and I physically know I can't run a four minute mile. And so I think we, and especially, you know, in this country where we can overanalyze everything to death at some point you actually have to go and do whatever it is you've said you're going to go do otherwise we just mail in the ballot and say this is the result of the game trying to get people to work their yeah work hard but work smarter is what i try to coach by because a lot of young athletes today just think they can sign up for all these club teams and traveling tournament teams and well i've done all of this work so now i should be on on the varsity team but it still comes down to me looking at those athletes and saying, fundamentally, you will make my team if you have this level of skill. And if you don't have the level of skill, it doesn't matter all those other things that you've done. If you haven't attained that level of skill, it's not a right to now play on this team. But, you know, the sports psychologists, you know, back in the day when we used to play in the UK, I mean, we'd arrive at a game. There would be no hours warm up with music going on and all this hoopla. We'd fall out of a car, put our cleats on, run on the field, play. Nobody's giving you a speech. Nobody's giving you a rah-rah. And now there is so much surrounding sports, you know, particularly here in this country, to get people psyched up. Well, you know, if you want to perform at a high level, that should be coming. I think you have to have that internal fire I can help ignite it, but I can't, I can't be the one that implants it initially. If you don't have it, I can't give it to you. 
so do you, how do you, okay, how do you help people connect to that internal fire? Working every single day, trying to do different things, having my assistants coach some of practice, try, you know, trying to really get to know your constituent because some of your athletes, some of my climbing partners, some people respond to lots of external rah-rah, yeah, you can do it, you can do it. Some people want silence. Some people want quiet support. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Some will rise to a challenge different, differently. Some want very competitive situations all the time. So you, Others, spend, you spend a lot of time learning. Coach Carroll has a phrase, learn your learner. Yes. And so you spend a lot of time learning your folks to see if they're internally or externally motivated. Yes. And what do you do with the ones, like how do you help build the fire for the ones that are either their inner fire, their internal fire is dormant or they just haven't tapped into it? Like how do you bring that out in people? Do you just ask them? What is, like do you? Yeah. yeah. I mean I try to, um, at the beginning, you know, at the beginning of every seat, you have, we have individual meetings with athletes and you're dealing with first years who are, you know, they're, they're new to the, to the school, they're too afraid to even speak in your office. They're afraid to say anything because they want to make a team, you know. So first of all, breaking down that I trying to create again this safe environment that most sports, most things in life are about making mistakes all the time. It's about how we recover from our mistakes that makes the best athlete, the best team, the best person. It, life is not a perfect science. And so if you're not afraid to push the envelope to the point that you're going to fail, you'll never know how far you can push that. So, I, I, And I flat out love that. And then how do you help people recover from their mistakes? Like what is it, what do you do to help them through that process? I share, we do a thing, we don't do it every day, but we either do it at the beginning or the end of practice where we call either checking in or checking out of practice. And each student athlete, a minute or less, can share a quick story, something about their day. Every single person gets to speak in practice every day. It gives me a chance to put my finger on the pulse of how they're doing personally, how the team is doing, if people have got a lot of work, if it's a tough time on campus. But it's also a time that I share very personal stories of what I'm dealing with. A perfect example this year, I mean, I went I went for a trail run uh, one day and, you know, we still had a couple of games before one of the big games of our season. And team that won the national championship last year had just been upset by another conference team. I started daydreaming what it was going to be like when we beat that team because I know we were going to beat that team this year. And I tripped over a route. I went absolutely flying, had this huge digger on the trail, cut my knee, cut my elbow, laying on the, laying on the ground, blood. I was like, oh, that really hurt. I had to get up. I still, I was only just a mile into my run. <laughs> and that day at practice, I shared with the team because they could see I had, you know, big cut on my leg, cut on my elbow. I share my, you know, peaks and valleys very personally with the team and I sort of said to them I said you guys you know I always preach to you that our season is climbing a ladder we go one rung at a time if we try to step too many rungs up the ladder without making sure our foot is firmly on the next run 
we trip and probably crash and fall to the ground. And I did that because I was daydreaming about a game that actually was three games ahead of where we were. And I, I bid it big time. So I said, I am a walking metaphor for everything I tell you not to do. Yeah, that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you. Because um, not only are you doing it, not only have you summited many mountains and Everest um, once and attempted it another time, which I want to get into now, but you're also coaching it. So I, I really wanted to understand you're like a working laboratory. And then it sounds like you just hit the nail on the head is that you model risk taking and resiliency by sharing how and the, the, it's not like this one it's not a theory that you're sharing you're sharing hey listen day in day out here's where i made a mistake here's where i've done well here's how you know it sounds like you're modeling it and giving people on your team ways to model it as well for each other i i hope so okay. i mean mm-hmm. that that's my theory and then we ended up beating that team three nothing later and i said i would take the dive for you guys again any game <laughs> so yeah, that's good. it was awesome okay so what is harder the decisions that we make in moments of duress uncomfortableness pain physically or emotionally or is it the internal battle about staying with something so i don't know if i'm being clear enough but Oh, that, yeah, yeah, no, no, that's clear. Okay, yeah. Um, oh, wow, that's, that's a very interesting question. I think there are challenges for me personally now. Uh, at, I'm, you know, at 57, that's a number on a piece of paper in my mind. But every morning when I get up, I'm reminded by it now <laughs> because it, it gets harder it is definitely harder physically. Yeah. However, m- many of my my rock climbing and mountaineering partners are young males in their thirties. I feel a huge pressure that I need to still be able to perform at the level that they are, because mountaineering, rock climbing is colorblind and and it is gender neutral in that respect. That. I don't want to be the person who's holding somebody up. I don't ever want to be the, oh, it's that woman. And so I think working with a population that's 18 to 21, I am surrounded by youth and vibrance and music that I think I'm delusional because I still think that I can stand on the end line. And there are times where I've actually run you know, part of our fitness test or I have done sprints with my team and I'm not coming in first, but the ones that I beat should be embarrassed because I still am. There's some research out of Harvard that when you manipulate people's environment that and you turn back time, and mm-hmm. you've turned back time like by 50 years, yep. that if you put them in that environment long enough, literally, it's like old clocks, old images, old sofas, or yep. contemporary sofas from that time 50 years earlier, that they change their psychology. And then and there's they take a- on. Yeah, and then there's actually phys- physical markers, uh, physiological markers in their body that start to change as well. Uh, to to yeah, so it's you're, I think that you're onto something really important. That research is also going to back you, saying that when you're in environments that are switched on, something happens to us. Yep. And when we're in environments where people are pessimistic, where they're dodgy, where they're um, complaining about stuff, and I'm not talking about Brits in general. Yep. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but like, you know, when you're in those environments that 
and people are finding all the things that are wrong and hard and difficult and not reasons not to do, then we, I think we get, we accelerate our aging process and our belief that we can do more than what we're able to do now. So go, can you t take me back to that question though? What is, what is the, is it decision-making under duress or is it the staying with it under duress that is um, the difficult, the more difficult challenge? I think decision-making under duress and the circumstances of the environment that you're in when you're making those decisions can be also very stressful and can be dangerous. Um, so in, in a mountain environment, those decisions can have incredible consequence. And, you know, when we talked about into thin air, Oftentimes, decisions that are made in a mountaineering environment, it's not the decision that causes somebody to lose their life in that one instance. It's sort of cumulative decisions over a period of time. In the same way, I think in industry, when you look at catastrophic accidents in an industrial setting, it wasn't the final button that got pressed. There were things way before that that led to that wrong decision being made. I think the important thing is trying to be cognizant enough that you can step back and sometimes look at the situation from the outside looking in to see the big picture because you get so unifocused on the singular goal that you then can't see everything that's surrounding you that an outsider might go, oh my God, <laughs> look behind you. He's right there. Um, mm -hmm. I, th I think that's really important. Do you use mindfulness or meditation to be able to um, amplify that toggle? I do, but I don't do it all the time. And I think I draw on that more in the particular moments, i.e. when I'm running when I'm climbing, when I'm on expeditions, when you are so into whatever the activity is, standing on the sideline of a game, mm -hmm. self-talk, the actual, once I'm in it, but, you know, the everyday in the office, sometimes the craziness, I think for me, I have to find, it's so important to be able to find half an hour to go and have a run to get into that headspace. Sounds like that is part of your. It's like a um, mindful movement. Is that you're using movement to be more connected to your thoughts, so that you can be aware of them and play with them and toggle from first person to observer. It sounds like you're using that, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I mean that's why for me, I have an area that I run a lot. That's you know it's trails, and you know right now it's beautiful and the leaves are changing, and I never run with headphones on. I've tried to, but running is not about numbing my senses and I haven't needed music to motivate me to run. I want to run and hear the birds and see the deer that's standing in the middle of the trail stop and realize I'm 10 feet from a deer that's right here. It's I enjoy running in nature to be able to maybe have that focus be a little bit more intense. Mm, okay. So yeah, that would definitely be mindful movement, right? You, yeah. Using movement as a way to be aware of your thoughts and experiences. Yeah. yeah. And then can you take us into your turning back from Everest? 
because yeah. um, if I set it up correctly in my mind is that you train your ass off for no, you weren't actually. You didn't train. Most people would train. Well, yeah, but yeah. You, I was. I was actually. You know, two thousand and four. I lost about twenty five pounds on that expedition because the food was so terrible, and you're you're in an environment where it's cold. So you're you're cold in your altitude. So your heart rate is is always just about maximum heart rate. So it, it's it's like putting your foot on the gas and just keeping the car running with your foot on the gas. You're going to burn out that gas tank really quickly. And so you burn about 10,000 calories a day when you're at extreme altitude. So you just can't take in that amount of food. And when the food's not good and you're not eating, um, so that creates another level of stress for sure. So when I went back in 2006, my training was I actually tried to put on weight before I went on the trip, knowing I was still going to lose weight. Mm. So along with sort of doing more work on the elliptical and sort of long, heavy resistance elliptical work, I was eating. That was my training, uh, <laughs> which you know, was kind of counterintuitive for most women, I think. But Okay, so anyway. let's go back to your first ex- expedition that you, yeah. you you showed up, you were committed, you put some money there, you put your, your fit because that's your lifestyle. Um, you have great awareness of your inner dialogue, you're with other people, and you're going to go do something difficult, something challenging. And that is a beautiful Petri dish for you in particular, based on what we've just learned, or I've just learned about you. And then and then I think you're, I don't know, I haven't heard you say that the ultimate aim is to you know win championships and to reach your goals, but they're important. And so, yep. so you're setting out to do this important you know summit, or the summit for yourself. What was it like the moments before turning back? And what was it like when you actually turned back? Can you bring us into that that moment? So the group that we had originally had been in quite a lot of conflict and was pretty much splitting into – there was a group of us that felt that we were sort of taking the moral high ground – leader of our expedition had suggested that we would steal oxygen, we wouldn't pay for ropes, um, we would do things very underhandedly, keep the budget low. But the minute that it meant we were going to endanger other people's lives, that's when there was a group of about four of us were absolutely not on board with that. And Four out of how many? Uh, there were eight of us altogether, I, th- I believe, that had formed from here, from, from the state of Connecticut. One of my friends, one of the good guys, if you like, decided long before this that he wanted no part of climbing Everest under this type of uh, sort of way. And he, uh, take my hat off, he turned around at advanced base camp long before both Michael Codis, who wrote the book in um, High Crimes, um, he turned around long before and said, that's it, I'm done. And, you know, in retrospect, I I probably should have done the same thing. I we kept it's laughable, but we kept saying, "Oh, it'll be okay when we get to Kathmandu. It'll be okay when we get to base camp. It'll be okay when we get to advanced base camp. Things will settle down. The team will come together." We kept sort of giving ourselves that little caveat or an out that it's going to get better, and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. Based on the leader's advice, you set out with not enough oxygen. And- well, it, we didn't even set out with not enough. There was never an intent to buy enough. Mm. It was you'll only need X amount 
And when we got to the mountain, we took his advice. He said, oh, well, we don't really have enough, but don't worry. Every year I've been here, I've been able to just pick up more when I've needed it from other camps. And of course, the group of us that were were sort of banding together were absolutely horrified by this. And Mm. obviously that really divided the group. And interestingly, a, a guy who I had been a climbing partner of just went with the leader because he was so driven for the summit. And many people on these big expeditions get what you call summit fever. It's summit at all cost, regardless of human life or care for others. And, you know, to this day, I, I ended my friendship with this particular person because of the decision that he made to continue regardless of the rest of us. And this individual actually summited in 2004. And I told him once we returned to the US that I would no longer climb with him. I would not tie onto a rope with him. And our friendship was over. And how does he justify his behavior in uh, ransacking other people's or taking other people's oxygen, which obviously like <laughs> in yeah. this environment, you and I speaking, that sounds morally, horrific. morally horrific. Yeah. He, his justification was, well, um, you know, if we really need it, then those people would be happy for us to have it. And they probably weren't going to be able to use it anyway. And, oh yes, of course we'd replace it, which was not true. And so I think he, sort of allowed himself to think that if they did use other people's that it would be replaced and but by the same token there was no effort made to pay for the fixed ropes that were being put in place and all the expeditions were going to um, you know chip in to cover the additional cost of these ropes our expedition flatly refused to pay and then a group of us went a group of us went to Oh, the leader of one of the expeditions that was placing the ropes and we offered to pay out of our own money that it wouldn't be coming from our expedition. It was just going to be the four of us that were going to put up extra cash um, because we just felt that morally it was wrong for us to use ropes that have been put in place that we weren't paying for. And so his his explanation for that was, well, they're doing they're doing that on their own. Nobody's asking them to, to use fixed ropes. And so we won't touch them, which, okay. So you mean you're going to climb and the ropes that are actually right in front of your nose, you're not going to put your hands on Mm. again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm fascinated by ethical decision-making processes under duress because I don't know anyone that says I'm a bad human being. I'm Mm -hmm. a terrible human being and I do bad things. Uh, Mm -hmm. So people, People have a, an armor, a process, a denial, you know, something that they do to be able to protect themselves from saying, I'm an awful human being. And I don't know, but the moment of crisis is for many people is when you say, oh my gosh, what I've been doing has been awful. And that must mean I'm, I'm an awful human being. And that's a massive crisis for people. But so it sounds like you, you, you had your wits about you to be able to say this is unethical behavior even when you had so much money on the line, so much effort on the line, so much commitment that you still turned around, not from a physical challenge, but from a moral dilemma? Yeah, I I mean, Mike at the time wasn't feeling well, and altitude was just making that worse. I had a chest infection, which is very common at altitude, so I'm now moving up to Camp 2, 
not at my strongest, which most climbers aren't. And the, I think the final straw for both of us was we got to a point where the leader of the expedition threatened Michael and threatened to throw the tent, our tent off the mountain for things that Michael was uh, writing and reporting back to the newspaper that he, he worked for the Hartford Current here in Connecticut and was sending blogs back for them to print. And he was writing what was happening. And the leader of the expedition read what Michael was writing. And so he sort of, he threatened Michael and his safety. And at that point, it became really evident that those people were no longer part of a team that would help and look out for us and be a band of brothers on the mountain. And Michael and I were now climbing independently, just the two of us, not feeling 100%. And it was just so evident to me that as hard a decision as this was going to be, I no longer felt safe because I didn't trust my teammates. And that was the worst realization for me was you thought you were part of a team, but actually you're not. Mm, okay. Um, and then so you geared back up and, and took another crack at it two years later? Yeah, we came back. Trinity was amazing. You know, they gave me the time off the first time and I promised my athletic director, well, I'll never do something like this again. And two years later, I'm knocking on the door saying, <laughs> can I go back again, please? And part of this was Michael Codis now had a book deal and was writing about our 2004 experience. And he wanted to go back to do, he needed to do some more um, interviews actually on the mountain because the book didn't come out you know, until the end of 2006 about the 2004 expedition. And so Michael was like, come on, let's go back. But this time we went with a group that I knew the leader. I went through a reputable outfitter. You, know, you really get what you pay for. And they were all, it wasn't a guided group. It was all people that were experienced mountaineers. So the other climber from Connecticut, uh, my friend Bill, who turned around, he went with us as well. And of our group, there were 12 climbers originally. Unfortunately, Mike did not summit. Bill didn't summit. Of the 12, there were six of us that were still going on summit day. And I was I was lucky enough to be one of them. And it was the complete opposite of the group in 2004. Everybody was 100% committed to what we were doing, supportive, shared their food, shared equipment, shared everything. And I almost needed to go back to erase and rewrite my memory of the awful experience of 2004. She was. It's awesome that you had a chance to do that. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, but, I mean, when I do lectures and presentations now, I, 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 I talk about 2004, but I... I my slides are all of my 2006 expedition. I don't want it to all seem like it's all lovely, blah blah blah. But I do talk about the adversity of of what happened in 2004, but what was positive, and I I focus for me on 2006. Is there a phrase or word that guides your life? <sighs> I think honesty. Mm -hmm. And is there is there a phrase or a word that cuts to what you do the best? 
I just think I'm a, one of the hard workers of the world. <laughs> What's that like to say? My hands hurt and I've got blisters, but I'm going to keep doing this until I can't do it anymore. It feels good. I like building things. I like doing things. I like seeing physical things as a result of my labor, whether it's my team or completing something. Um, that's important to me. And what's, what, is your, what are you internally driven by? You, you're one of the hard workers. Fear of failing. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So what would failure be and what is success? Well, success is standing on top of the mountain. Failure is not even putting the backpack on in the first place. I, I, that's amazing. Um, I didn't know you were going to say that because not using the backpack analogy, that's how I describe failure as well, which is the not going for it, playing it safe yeah. and small. It's, that's the failure. Yeah, I think you're the first person in these interviews that have reaffirmed that thought for me. So. Oh. That's okay. pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. What is the, on your inner critic, I'm sure you have one. <laughs> yeah. You know, so what do you do with the inner critic? As soon as you are aware of the thought that you have that's being critical, what do you do with that critic? It's interesting you say that. I, Paul and I were talking about this the other day. I still stand on the sideline when I'm coaching and I feel like someone's going to find out that I really have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> And they're going to tap me on the shoulder and go, okay, you fooled us for how many years we found you. So I think that sort of imposter syndrome mm -hmm. goes back to that teacher. Mm -hmm. I think I still battle with that. I think, I think most of us do. And so you dive deeper into what it is you do and you do it harder and longer and more to try to justify that you actually – do your colleagues actually value you as as somebody who knows what they're talking about, or is it all smoke and mirrors? So at Stanford, uh, incoming professors are—I don't know if it's still the case—but at one time they were all asked to take a, a course on imposter syndrome because yep. professors are walking around. They look down the hallway, or the person next to them in their office next to them is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and they're walking into Stanford saying. How did I get here? What you know? Mm -hmm. And so this imposter, the com conversation about imposter syndrome, I, it's come up over and over and over again on this podcast. And so it's except people doing exceptional things, and people that are exceptional doing exceptional things tend to run into that. Am I going to be found out one day? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So last couple questions here. Pressure comes from resistance. Hmm. Internal or external resistance? Um, I think both. Okay. Yeah. You don't have pressure unless something is pushing against it to make that pressure be what it is. That's a really cool thought. Okay, so where can we learn more about what you're what you're up to? I enjoy doing public speaking and working with other groups, sharing my story, and I'm you know I don't have a business set up yet, but you know, I, I basically sort of market myself that I'm just a normal average working person that can do some things that hopefully can inspire and make other people realize that they can do really cool things too. Well, you have something to offer and I want to encourage you to um, amplify that as best you can. And we're going to do it here on this podcast. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. And let's thank Paul Asiante and yep. his, his podcast for getting us connected uh, on this as well. And then so 
with that, I hope you have a great afternoon. Thanks so much. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye, Bye Mike. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday. Punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously. And the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.